the final game of the 1950 World Cup. You get a prize if you know who played in that game. <laughs> it was between Brazil and Uruguay. And the final game was supposed to be a formality. Uh, Brazil were clear favourites. All they needed to win the World Cup was a draw. You know, that, that, was ben, that was in the old format of the World Cup where they, they played round-robin matches. Uh, Brazil had already won their previous two matches, 7-1 and 6-1. And what's more, Brazil had home ground advantage. The match was played at the Maracanã Stadium in Rio and they had about 200,000 fans in attendance. Uh, Brazilian newspapers were so confident of victory that they had already printed early editions before the match announcing Brazil as world champions. Uh, the match began as expected. Brazil took an early lead, 1-0. Everything looked like it was going according to plan. They started well. All they needed to do was finish the match. Then from out of the blue, Uruguay equalised. Well, no problem. Brazil can still win the World Cup with a draw. Then Uruguay scored again. <laughs> and Brazil lost 1-2. <laughs> Their hopes and dreams of winning a first-ever World Cup dashed. You know, reports of the match that day described how a disturbing and traumatic absolute silence descended on the stadium. Can you imagine 200,000 people silent. Uh, and an entire nation was in shock and sorrow. You know, Brazilian fans to today still bear the scars of that heartbreaking defeat. You know, indeed, one of the hardest things, and those of us who are sports fans, we know that one of the hardest things for us is to endure seeing our favourite team throw away a lead and lose a big match. That, that's a hard thing to see for sports fans. You know, I, I tell this story because it, it, it must have been also painful for the author of Hebrews to see these Christians seemingly throw away a lead, to lose something so important, more important than the World Cup. It must have been painful to, for the author of Hebrews to see those who seem to have started the Christian life well, forsake the faith they once professed. Now, we may also know the heartache of seeing loved ones and dear friends turn away from Jesus. You know, we too face the danger of drifting. You know, so as Hebrews draws to a close, the author of Hebrews makes a final plea. You know, and, and he gives us an urgent warning before he wraps up his letter. You know, he urges us, hey, hold on to your lead. Right? You, you are out in front because of what Christ has done. Don't throw that away. Play out the match. Hold on to what you have in Christ. Hold on to the confidence that you have in Christ and keep going. Now, how, might we, how might we be tempted to turn away from Jesus? You know, perhaps disappointments and difficulties make us want to give up. Maybe chasing after the pleasures and promises of the world seem to us to be better than following Jesus. Or we may simply be spiritually tired or spiritually forgetful. And we, may, we may be so caught up with just daily life, just how busy daily life is, that we lose sight of Jesus and the wonderful gospel that we have in Him. Well, friends, whatever we may be wrestling with, Hebrews urges us to cling on to Christ. There's this constant drumbeat in the letter of Hebrews that, that you know, keeps sounding, Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better. Why? Because we, we are prone to forget that Jesus is better. And we are want to look around us and seemingly find better things around us, things that catch our fancy. And we are inclined to turn away from Christ. So we need to hear again and again how Jesus is better. So this is the big idea for our text this morning. Press on in Christ, for we have come to a better mountain and received a better kingdom, a better mountain and a better kingdom. So let's begin by looking at verses 18 to 14 of our text. And our passage is found on page 948 of our Pew Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of our Pew Bibles and take it home with you if you like uh, to, uh, a copy of the Bible to read on your own. Uh, let me read for us from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, in these verses, Hebrews sketches for us a tale of two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. You know, these two mountains are compared and contrasted in these verses. Uh, in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai is associated with the giving of the law, while Mount Zion is associated with the temple in Jerusalem, the temple that David made plans for and Solomon, his son, built. Mount Sinai represents the Old Covenant and the Law. Mount Zion represents the New Covenant that Jesus, David's greatest son, has established through the Gospel. And because of trials and persecution, the original recipients of Hebrews were tempted to go back to Sinai. They were tempted to go back to the seeming safety of Judaism. Right? Because Judaism was a recognized religion, in the Roman Empire, uh, if you were a Jew practicing Judaism, you were sheltered from, uh, from persecution from the state. But not so for Christianity. Christianity wasn't recognized as a religion. So to be a Christian would be to expose yourself to persecution, whether socially or from the state. So because of the hardship that they were facing, these Jewish Christians were tempted, or even Gentile Christians were tempted to avoid the shame and suffering of following Jesus by returning to the rituals and sacrifices of the Old Covenant. They thought it was safer, maybe better. You know, then, perhaps, if they went back to Judaism, others would approve of them. Their family would love them again. Their family would accept them again. Maybe life would be better, easier, if they were just to go back 
to the comforts of what they left behind. You know, likewise, we are often tempted to go back to Egypt. We realize that living the Christian life is not easy. Sometimes we think, gosh, it seems a lot easier and more uncomplicated to just be a non-Christian, to just live like the world, to love whatever the world loves, to chase after whatever the world loves. That seems to make more sense. seems to be easier for us to do that. So like these original recipients of the letter, we too are tempted to go back to return to the world. So the author of Hebrews says to us, don't do it. Don't go back. Don't go back to Sinai because you have come to a better mountain. Thanks to Jesus, who is our better high priest and sacrifice, we can draw near to God with full assurance. And that is far better than anything that Sinai could ever offer us. So the author of Hebrews says to us, don't throw away the confidence that you have in Christ. That confidence is precious. It's priceless. So in verse 18, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. He says, you've not come to Mount Sinai, friends. O Christian, remember that you have not come to Mount Sinai, which is not a heavenly place of joy, but an earthly place of terror. Lest we forget, Hebrews takes us back to the scary scene in Exodus 19 and 20 when God gave the Old Covenant law at Mount Sinai. It was terrifying. at, At Sinai, God did not invite the people to draw near. God told them to stay away. God's word warned. God's word did not welcome. It says in our text that even a senseless beast if it sets foot on the mountain, would be killed. How much more guilty sinners who foolishly think that they can approach God on their own terms. Now, this is why when the people heard God's voice at Sinai, uh, His words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Can you imagine? You hear a terrifying word from God and you say, please stop speaking. I cannot bear it. God's commands fill the people with abject dread. And they plead with Moses to be their mediator. And if you go back to Exodus 20, they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now, even Moses himself, Hebrews tells us, whom God appointed to go up to the mountain, you know, even he trembled with fear. Mount Sinai makes one thing very clear to all of us. God is holy and we are not. Our sin separates us from God. He is glorious in His perfections and purity. He is exalted in His holiness. God is high and lifted up Evil may not dwell with him. God is of purer eyes than to see evil, as Habakkuk 1 tells us. As we sung earlier, God is holy, holy, holy. When the prophet Isaiah sees a vision of God in the temple, what did he say? He cried out, 
Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oh, friends, to, to see the Lord, to see Him in His glorious holiness is a terrifying thing. Why? Because we know that we're not holy. We know that we can't stand in His presence. No, but human hearts are idle factories, aren't they? You know, human hearts love to make God in our image. You know, we're, we're prone to imagine God to be just a better and nicer version of us. You know, in fact, even talking about the notion of a, a holy God strikes some as rather old-fashioned. It's archaic, right? You know, who talks about holiness nowadays? You know, maybe we imagine God to be like a friendly uncle whose job, is it, whose job it is to excuse our sins, right? Hey, you know, a famous poet once said, you know, God will forgive, that's his job. You know, even the term sin has fallen out of favour, hasn't it? You know, the, the term sin sounds rather harsh. You know, we associate holiness with being judgmental, with being self-righteous, with being legalistic. So you don't talk about holiness. And you certainly don't talk about sin. Well, chocolate cake and fried kway are sinful. We, on the other hand, make mistakes. You know, we, we don't sin, we make mistakes. We commit indiscretions. We have personality disagreements. But we don't sin. But friends, if, if we think little of God, we will think little of sin. And, and that's where the Old Covenant law is so helpful. The law helps us see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of our sin. That's the point of Mount Sinai. Now, in, instead of reflecting His holy character, we have not obeyed Him. The law shows the great gulf between us and God. And, and the law tells us that there is no way that we can ever come to God on our own. You know, friends, if, if you're trying to come back to God on the basis of your, of your obedience, if you think your obedience will gain you a right standing with God, will somehow make you acceptable to Him just on the basis of your obedience, friends, that's a dead end. The, the law cannot save any of us. Our so-called righteousness is unable to save us. We are not good people. And the law makes that very clear. Mount Sinai makes that very clear, that there's a great gulf between fallen humanity and the holy God. You know, in fact, under the old covenant, as we've heard earlier in the Hebrews, even the high priest could only enter God's holy place once a year and not without coming with blood for his own sins. You know, that, that's, that's the distance between God and man. You know, sacrifices were repeated year after year under the Old Covenant as a reminder of sin and guilt. Basically, the law exposes our sin, but the law has no power to save. You know, the, the law is like a, a, a sign, right? Uh, imagine someone is drowning, and the law is like a sign that says, beware deep water. You know, if, you, if you point the drowning man to the sign and say, hey, look to the sign, it's useless, right? 
The sign cannot save a drowning man. The sign simply points out that the water is deep. Stay away. The man needs a saviour. And same for us. The law brings condemnation and death, but the law cannot give life. Right? So, so that's the picture that the author of Hebrews paints for us in these verses. The law cannot give life. So why go back to the old covenant? Why go back to Sinai? Well, I know that we're, most of us are probably not about to return to Judaism anytime soon, but we are tempted to turn away from Jesus to phony hopes, to fake good news, things that cannot save. We're tempted to start trusting in ourselves, thinking that somehow our own merits have earned us a place with God. We're tempted to self-reliance because the culture around us tells us that self-sufficiency and self-reliance are good things. We're tempted to take pride in our accomplishments, to imagine that somehow because we've been you know, doing this for such a long time, surely God is pleased with us. We're all tempted to turn back to some kind of fake good news. You know, we're easily distracted by worldly concerns and ambitions, we become proud, self-righteous, self-reliant. Or maybe some of us imagine that we're not that bad. <laughs> That surely God must accept me because I do right things, I'm a moral person, I do religious things. But rejecting Christ, you know, turning away from Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus to other things, only leads to a dead end. There is no salvation without Jesus. And I realise that we really need to hear this because if, if you are aware of this recent survey done by Pew Research of Christians in Singapore, so around 50%, about half, about half of professing Christians said in the survey that they believe that other religions can be true. That's a quite a frightening statistic. About half of Christians, about half of professing Christians in Singapore believe that other religions can be true. Which means half of Christians in Singapore believe that there are other ways to God. So for me to say there is no salvation without Jesus, maybe about 50% of professing Christians would disagree with me. And that's a sobering statistic, isn't it? But it, 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 it's something that needs to be said. There is no salvation without Jesus. The law cannot save. And if God's law cannot save, how much more useless are the things that we trust in to save us? We have no hope without Jesus. All we have is a fearful expectation of judgment. But if we have repented of our sins and believed in Jesus, then the author of Hebrews tells us we have come to Mount Zion. Notice the tense. It's past tense. We're not trying to get to Mount Zion on our own. We're not you know, trying to get there by willpower or our own efforts. But, but Hebrews tells us we have come. Through Jesus, we have already come. It's not something that we do for ourselves, but something that Jesus has already accomplished for us. And in Christ, we have already drawn near to God. When we're tempted to quit running, Hebrews wants us to recall the rich blessings that are already ours through the gospel. Don't forget, 
you know, recall the rich blessings that we have in Christ. Verses 22 to 24 exhort us to see how God's people enjoy God's pleasure and presence in God's place. That, that's a little summary of verses 22 to 24. God's people enjoy God's pleasure and presence in God's place. You know, under the old covenant, we were far from God. The law told us to stay away. But now in Christ, we enjoy God's presence in God's place. The, one of the, the, the biggest blessings of the gospel is access, the freedom to come to God through Jesus. As, as we sung earlier, Jesus, I come. That's the big blessing of the gospel, that we can come freely to the holy God. You know, we have come to Mount Zion, Hebrews says, the city of the living God. In the Old Testament, King's, King David's son Solomon built the temple on Mount Zion. And the temple stood for God's dwelling place where he displayed his glory. The, the temple was central to the Old Testament worship of God's people because it was the meeting place between God and man. But now we, we have no need of an earthly temple, a physical structure, a building, because we meet God in the very person of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus in the New Testament says, I am the temple. I am the meeting place where the Holy God meets with sinful humanity. We meet God in the person of Jesus. So we've not come to an earthly place. Zion here refers to the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem in Palestine, but the heavenly Jerusalem. The earthly tabernacle and temple were types and shadows of the real thing. In Christ, we have entered God's presence and place into the very Holy of Holies. We can confidently draw near to God in prayer, to the throne of grace, where we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Prayer is, a, is an amazing blessing of the gospel. You know, we often come across surveys of the best cities to live in in the world. You know, according to a recent ranking by the Economist Intelligence Unit, Singapore was ranked 34th worldwide and 10th in Asia. Now, I don't know how you feel about living here. You know, however we may feel about living in Singapore, Hebrews tells us we have a better city to look forward to a far better city. You know, don't, don't, get too, don't get too comfortable here. Or don't get too frustrated with life here. We have a far better city. Whether we are Singapore citizens, PRs, or here on a work pass, we are all resident aliens. We are all sojourners and exiles. We actually don't belong here. This is a temporary city for us. In Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. In fact, as, as Hebrews tells us, we have already come by faith to the heavenly Jerusalem. And one day our faith shall turn to sight. And that's why the Bible ends in this way in Revelation 21. And I saw, so we're no longer living by faith, but at the end of the Bible, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. 
and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Imagine a city without sorrow, or sin, or death. For the former things have passed away. Oh, beloved, if we are in Christ, we have come by faith to this city, and we long for our heavenly city. Which is why we sung earlier, Jerusalem, my happy home. When shall I come to thee? When, sh- when shall my labours have an end? Thy joys, when shall I see? Well, we live this life looking forward to that better city. In, in Christ, we are God's people. As Hebrews reminds us as well, we have come to the, have, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You know, the word assembly there is, is church. We have come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Basically, God has made us members of his church. This is what membership is about, right? How do we become members of the church? We come to faith through Jesus Christ. God includes us as part of this membership of his church. God has gathered us as members of his church. Through faith in Christ, we are enrolled into the membership of the body of Christ. In fact, this is the reason why we join a local church. We we join a church because it shows that we belong to God's church. So our, our local church membership gives tangible expression to the fact that we belong to this heavenly assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. How do we join this church? Simply through Jesus Christ. By believing in Him, trusting Him, and living a life that is consistent with following Him. You know, we can join all sorts of earthly clubs, societies, organizations, but the only membership that truly matters is that our names are included in God's book of life. And I I love the description of being a Christian here in these verses because you realise that it's not individualistic. We've joined an assembly. We don't just carry on doing our own thing, but we've joined an assembly of God's people. This is why we assemble on the Lord's Day because we are giving expression to this truth that we belong to an assembly. We're not meant to live our Christian life in an individualistic way. But what gives the Christian life significance is that we assemble as God's people. I realize I'm preaching to the choir here because you all are assembled. But we do have members in the church who have not assembled with us for some time. So I urge those of you who know of members who haven't assembled with us for some time, reach out to them. Encourage them to assemble with God's people. This is what it means to be a member of a local church. Membership is meaningful because we assemble as fellow members of the church. If we don't assemble, then our membership is not meaningful because we don't see one another. We don't do ministry with one another. So assemble, friends. Assemble as the church because we have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. As God's people, we enjoy God's pleasure. Isn't that amazing? You know, Sinai, God told us to stay away But in the new covenant, God says, come, come, I am pleased with you. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, To to hear 
approval, not from man, but from God, that he is pleased with us. Notice how the, the verse calls us firstborn, right? The, the word firstborn is, is a rich term, meaning that we are God's beloved children. We have pride of place in his family. Jesus is God's firstborn son. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. And in Christ, who is God's firstborn son, we have been adopted as God's firstborn sons. And as Caleb mentioned last week, sons is not, the sense is not masculine, but, but the word sons emphasizes the fact that we will inherit. We have the legal right of inheritance. So all of us, male and female, are firstborn sons because we are rightful heirs of our father's riches. So friends, remember that we are firstborn. Why chase after earthly things? When we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for those of us who belong to God through Jesus Christ. And we have come to God, the judge of all, verse 23. You know, the notion of standing before God, the judge of all, may sound frightening. But, but I think the author of Hebrews is putting this here intentionally uh, to assure us that we are guaranteed of God's full acceptance and approval. As we come and stand before God, the judge of all, he declares us right with him. It's nothing more comforting to know that God is just if we are in Christ. Because we know that because God is just and because of what Christ has done, he will declare us righteous, no question. Jesus has credited to us his perfect righteousness. In him, we are holy and right with God. And we can be encouraged by the many saints who have gone before us. Right? Verse 23, we have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, who, who are these spirits? I believe they refer to the faithful men and women who have died in faith. Perhaps the men and women of Hebrews 11. These have died in faith, trusting in God's promises to save. They are righteous and perfect through Jesus. And if we share in their faith, we shall follow in their footsteps. Sinai was scary, but Mount Zion is a joyful celebration. We have come to a countless host of angels in festal gathering. Verse 22. Basically, we've come to a party. We've come to a festival of worship. That, that's the picture in verse 22. A festal gathering. A, a, a joyful assembly of God's redeemed people. We praise Him with gladness because He has saved us. God's people enjoy God's pleasure and, and presence in God's place. Now, how can it be that guilty, undeserving sinners like us can receive such lavish blessings? How can it be that God, the judge of all, can look at us and say that we are right? It's only because we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, verse 24. Now, notice the list kind of climaxes at verse 24. This is the culmination of the blessing of the gospel. Jesus has brought us 
into a new covenant relationship with God, a covenant that can never be broken, a covenant that is based on our forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. How? By His better sacrifice, the sprinkled blood of Christ. Jesus bore God's judgment and wrath in our place. The curse of the law was placed on Jesus so that we might be made right with God if we repent and trust in Him alone to save us. Because of what Jesus has done, the terror of Sinai has been replaced by the peace of Christ, by the joy of Christ. The blood of Abel, who was murdered by his brother Cain, cries out for justice. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Jesus' blood pleads for God's mercy and our forgiveness. Jesus' blood says justice has been satisfied because I have borne the wrath of God in order that my people may be forgiven and brought back to Him. Jesus' blood washes our guilt and sin away. God has raised and exalted Jesus who is seated at God's right hand and now we have a high priest who ever lives to plead for us. Oh, beloved, in Christ we are God's people. We enjoy God's pleasure and presence in God's place. Don't throw all that away. Whatever you may be tempted to this morning, tempted by this morning, whatever you may be inclined to turn away to, away from the gospel, remember these words. Remember the blessing that you have in Christ. Press on, for you have come to a better mountain. Number two, press on, for we have received a better kingdom. Let me read from verses 25 to 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, verses 25 to 29 gives, give us another motivation to keep pressing on. So we've received a better, we've come to a better mountain, and these verses tell us we have received a better kingdom. You know, in New Testament times, Rome was known as the eternal city. You know, people believed that Rome would endure forever. They called it an empire without end. Of course, we all know what happened to Rome. You know, even the grandest of earthly kingdoms do not last. You know, city-states in particular have a pretty poor track record, you know, just putting it out there. <laughs> they rise and fall. They come and go. But if we have believed in Jesus, then we have received a kingdom that will never be shaken. It cannot be shaken. Well, what is this kingdom? It's, it's nothing less than God's kingdom. God's kingdom refers to God's loving and righteous rule over His people. In fact, we enjoy some of the blessings of God's kingdom now. 
but the kingdom has not yet come in its full glory. We are still waiting for our king to arrive, King Jesus. He's yet to return. And when he does, he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus will make all things new. He will put right all the wrongs. As we read in Revelation 21, sickness, sorrow, sin and death shall be no more in God's kingdom. We will then live with God forever in perfect peace and joy. So these verses in Hebrews confront us with this question, what kingdom are we living for? What kingdom are we living for? Whose kingdom are we living for? How might we be giving our time and energies to build our own little kingdoms, our own little kingdoms of comfort, our own little kingdoms of control, of pleasure, of power, of security, or success? And do we spend most of our waking hours worried about our own little kingdoms? Well, First John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God will not be shaken. Created things will be shaken and removed. That's what these verses tell us in Hebrews 12. We have to seek first the kingdom of God because that's the only kingdom that will never be shaken. Therefore, we must pay attention to God. Verse 25, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. God, who in these last days has spoken to us by His Son, is still speaking to us today. God speaks to us through the preaching of His Word. God speaks to us when we read His Word, when we study His Word together. God speaks with us through other Christians who speak the truth in love to us. So today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Trust and obey God's Son. You know, take to heart the warning of verse 25. It's a sober warning. You know, we think Sinai is scary, but listen to verse 25. If those who broke the old covenant law did not escape God's judgment, then much less will we escape if we refuse to listen to God's Son who warns from heaven. Breaking the old covenant is bad enough, but rejecting the gospel is far, far worse. Deserving of greater judgment. Friends, Repent and believe in Jesus now. Do not harden your hearts. Do not wait another moment. Do not delay. Turn to Christ while we can. You know, when, when God gave the law at Mount Sinai, the ground quaked and His voice shook the earth, but a worse shaking is to come. Back then at Sinai, God simply shook a piece of land in the Middle East. But now he has promised, verse 26 and 27, now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal 
of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. A final judgment is coming, from which there will be no escape. All of creation will be shaken. This present world, this world that we're so comfortable in, this world as we know it, will perish. What is our only hope? What is our hope in the face of this universal, cosmic, cataclysmic judgment? Well, Psalm 2 tells us, blessed are those who take refuge in God's Son. Because this Son has come to save us from the wrath that is to come. God's curse against sinners fell on Jesus so that God's blessings may be poured out on all who trust in God's Son. Only through Jesus can we receive God's unshakable kingdom. And whoever believes in Christ will not perish, but have eternal life, will truly remain. We shall be saved if we keep running to the end and not give up. How should we respond to this gospel? What does it look like for us to press on in Christ? In Hebrews says it means living a life of grateful worship. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I think many of us struggle to be thankful. Life's difficulties and disappointments can often cause us to be discontented and discouraged. We're given to frustration. We're easily impatient. We we get bitter, perhaps, resentful. Uh, We we get anxious. We we even get angry that life hasn't turned out the way we want. We're tempted to complaining, to unbelief. So Hebrews encourages us to consider Christ and His coming kingdom to focus on our eternal hope and to live now with the future in view, to realize that we do not deserve this kingdom, we do not deserve to receive this unshakable kingdom, but we've received it freely on account of God's grace. So keep our eyes on the prize and run with grateful endurance. The more we focus on what Christ has done, for us, the more we cultivate a heart that is truly thankful, even amid life's difficulties and discouragements. Let's also offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. You know, thankfulness for the gospel will naturally lead to worship of God. Now, Hebrews reminds us not to take the gospel for granted. In fact, just because Jesus gives us confidence to draw near doesn't mean we can approach God callously or flippantly. Now, how might we be taking our gatherings here for corporate worship for granted? A couple of practical things for us to think about, things like being punctual so that we have time to settle our hearts and minds as we come together in corporate worship, be on time. Prepare for worship by reflecting on God's goodness to us in the gospel. Prepare for worship the night before, thinking about how God has saved you and others. Rejoice, come with a heart that is glad in Christ. Be present, don't neglect to meet together. These are ways in which we worship God with reverence and awe. 
Now, some of us may have put our preferences and convenience above the worship of God. Be careful, beloved, that we do not lose our awe of God. He is glorious in His holiness. Now, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. On On our own, none of us can come to God. But we praise God. We thank Him for how we, with all of our sinfulness and weaknesses, can draw near to Him through Jesus Christ. To cultivate reverence and awe, we must make much of God and make much of His gospel. We worship the God who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, We worship the God who dwells in the high and holy place and yet also draws near to us who are of a contrite and lowly spirit. We worship the God who revives the spirit of the lowly. We worship the God who revives the heart of the contrite. So let's examine our hearts. Do we draw near to God with our mouths and and honour Him with our lips while our hearts are far from Him? Does our worship of God flow out of a heart of grateful devotion to Him because of what He has done through the gospel of His Son? God desires more than merely our attendance on Sundays. He calls us to offer our entire being to Him, every single aspect of our lives to Him as a living sacrifice. That is our acceptable worship. Jesus, our high priest, has laid down his life for us. Given what he has done, should we not give ourselves to God? Worship entails glorifying God with all of our lives. Now, we worship God on Sunday because we worship him every day of the week. You know, our, our worship of God in the course of our daily lives makes our gathering on Sunday especially meaningful. Because we're doing corporately what we're doing individually during the week. We have to worship God at home, at school, at work, in our retirement. We worship God whether we are sick, whether we are well. We worship God in our singleness, in our marriage. So these are ways in which we worship God. In fact, if you read on to Hebrews 13, Hebrews Hebrews 13 describes what this worship looks like. This all-of-life worship means what? We love one another. We show hospitality to strangers. We stay faithful in marriage. We avoid the love of money. We obey church leaders. We suffer for Jesus. And we show generosity to others. That's, That's what worship looks like. If you just go on to read in Hebrews 13. We worship God with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. The holy God who spoke from Sinai is the same God who speaks to us now. He is still as holy. He is a jealous God who will not tolerate any rivals. He alone is worthy of all our worship. If we reject Him, we shall face the fire of his judgment. You know, but, but take heart. There's a bit of an encouragement at the end. 
Notice how Hebrews says, this holy God is our God. He has graciously opened up the way for us to draw near to Him through His Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ. And thanks to Jesus, our victory is assured. So beloved, don't throw away our confidence in Christ. Press on, for we have come to a, whole, to a better mountain and received a better kingdom. Let's pray together.